0: Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today my guest is Adiba Nelson, who is the author of Ain't That a Mother, the memoir that Essence, Bustle, Miss Magazine, and Shondaland all hailed as a must-read, and subject of the Emmy-winning documentary The Full Nelson. She is also a disability rights activist, executive producer, and creative consultant on the TV series based on her memoir, currently in development, a freelance journalist, semi-retired burlesque performer, and very tired mom. Welcome,
1: Adiba. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so glad you're here and our big secret, should I tell the listeners what our big secret is?
1: I mean, you better than me. (laughs) Okay.
0: So this is our second time recording because we had a little bit of a technical issue the first time. So this time it's gonna be even more exciting and captivating than it was the first time. So can you share a bit about your memoir, Ain't That a Mother?
1: Sure, I like to call it my journey to and through motherhood. Um, It's the good, the bad, oh hell nah of motherhood and everything that goes into it, it's the good relationships, the bad relationships, the ooh what was I thinking relationships, it's the mother-daughter relationship between me and my child and the mother-daughter relationship between me and my mother and at times her and her mother and how it all influences the mothering journey as it is.
0: Mhm. And your daughter Emery is how old now? Fourteen oh my gosh, you're like totally in
1: it. I'm in it, Um, in it. (laughs) Right?
0: Yeah, it's funny because I have some friends here in Seattle whose kids are about that age or just a smidge older. And they're in that phase where the kids don't really want to be seen with the parent and where they kind of are very frustrated with the parent. And when that was happening to me, I had to just hold on to the idea that maybe we would get through it and that they were trying to push me away because I felt so close to them. And actually now that my daughter is 18 and my son is 16, it's there's a thaw happening Mm. so are you anywhere near the thaw
1: no no (laughs) we have entered the glacial peaks is where we are at
0: it's really hard isn't it in fact i was just talking to a friend of mine who felt like they hadn't really gotten any signs of affection or warmth from their kid lately so how do you navigate that when that happens so
1: like she will still give me like hugs and kisses when i leave as long as her friends aren't around So, like, if I drop her off at school and there are other kids around, she's like, bye. Um, But if it's just us or if she's getting on the school bus and there's no one around, it's don't leave without giving me a hug. Don't leave without giving me a kiss. But what I'm seeing is the moodiness and Mm -hmm. the temper. And she's already a Taurus, so, like, there's (laughs) that temper. But, like, at the drop of a dime, any little thing can set her off. And she's like, ah, I hate life. And I'm like, me too.
0: <laughs> so what do you do? Do you give her space? I'm still working it out. I'm sort of an in-your-face mom sometimes. Well, not sometimes. My husband would be, like, shaking his head. <laughs> Everyone who knows me would be shaking their head because I'm super hands-on, super protective, in a way, Jewish mom. But I think it's hard for me sometimes to remember that they need their space and that it doesn't mean that
1: they don't love me or need me it's just that they need their space she needs her space and I need my space um because I know my like when I'm to that point like my frustration level and when she gets frustrated then I get frustrated and then we're just bouncing off each other and it's horrible mm-hmm. so when mm-hmm. she gets to her little uh and her stomping of her feet I'm like go go Settle your mood in your room because you're gonna keep doing this. You're gonna get more annoyed. I'm gonna get more annoyed We're not gonna get anywhere go Let me know when you're ready to like work this out So she'll go to her mm-hmm. room. She'll do her little breathing exercises or whatever she does it calms her down And then she'll come back out and she'll look at me and say you ready to talk. Yeah What do you need to say? And then she'll apologize. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are we apologizing for? Like, that's always the thing. Like, she's very attuned to um, social-emotional cues in people, right? And for your listeners mm-hmm. who don't know, mm-hmm. my daughter is disabled. She's got cerebral palsy and bilateral schizencephaly. Um, and she uses a communication device as well as, like, sign language and some verbal communication. But she's, very, she's always been very attuned to to other people's social emotional cues so like that's why she Mm. knows immediately when I'm frustrated then she's like oh I'm gonna up it a notch I'm gonna top your frustration with mine (laughs) (laughs) it is it's the worst and so when she comes (laughs) out and she's ready to talk I always say let's let's name what we did let's discuss why Mm. it was not okay and let's discuss what we're gonna do differently next time
0: Where did you learn how to do that, Adiba? You know, I know in the book, your mom is really, I mean, is hands-on or involved or just really part of your life, I guess. I mean, I would let you describe how you perceive it. But did you learn these mothering skills from watching your mom or did you figure them out on your own?
1: Some, yes. Some are my own. You know, I come from a generation where, you know, parents still spank their kids. And I come from a Latin home, a Caribbean Latin home where you don't question your parents. You know, there's no room for the tantrums or anything like that because that's just going to get you in more trouble. Mm -hmm. But my mom was also, that mom was like, I remember one time I got in some, I was getting in trouble a bit as a kid. And I think she was just like,
0: Mm -hmm. I'm so surprised. (laughs) I'm
1: joking, I'm joking. I um, I think she got into a point where she's like, clearly spanking is not working so she had me drop a behavior contract um, and like figure out what what was my expected behavior and what were the consequences if I didn't do what was expected and so there was that traditional mm-hmm. Latin old school parenting mixed in with some nuance um, but as I've become a parent you know, you learn from your parents, Look like, what you like, what you don't like, what you like that they did, what you didn't like, what they did. Mm-hmm. And we're in this um, age of, like, gentle parenting nowadays.
0: And yes, I think it's yes. it's
1: a mix of a little bit of old school because I'm pretty strict. Um, my daughter knows what's okay and what's not okay and what's expected. A little bit of new school, mm-hmm. gentle parenting, but also just learning my daughter, honestly, and learning what works for her and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Just because she has a disability doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that she doesn't get disciplined, doesn't mean that there are not consequences and rewards, but also Mm -hmm. every kid responds to different consequences differently. And so just really learning what works and what Mm -hmm. doesn't work and what keeps me sane and what doesn't keep me sane. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that we talked about this before, and and I found out that when I was reading your book that you grew up in Flushing, Queens.
1: I did. And
0: I I was just kind of squealing when I saw that, and I remember telling you that, and you were pretty excited too, because that's, I mean, I was there from third
1: grade to middle of high school, and you were there,
0: can you remind me how long?
1: Uh, I was in Queens, like Bayside and Flushing from... (laughs) Man, I think second grade, up to what would have been middle school. Mm, Gosh, have you been back? I was just in New York. um, I think it was the beginning of June, but I was in Manhattan. I haven't been back to, like, the old neighborhood in decades. I took my
0: family in 2013, I think, and... um, It was really fun. There were still some pizza places there that I remember. And I went to visit my old school and everything. And it was interesting to me. I don't know how you feel about those years for me. And then I want to I'm curious about you for me for so long. I didn't really have any interest in going back. And it was it was the scene of a lot of, you know, sadness and, you know, leaving and parental loss. Uh, So I just didn't like anything about that life, that part of my life. But as I got older and started to excavate what had happened and my family and wrote my book and Uh, I just felt more nostalgic for it and a little more like I wanted to revisit it and see what it was like because it shaped me so much and I don't know if you have any kind of connection to Flushing like that at all or
1: Queens I have a connection to New York as a whole in that way Um, New York City as a whole because I was born in Manhattan and I was raised between Queens and the Bronx it was a back and forth and a back and forth Mm. with most of my time spent in Queens um New York City as a whole is a place of like deep trauma, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: For me, a Mm -hmm. lot of um, my, all of my childhood trauma, like severe childhood trauma took place in New York Mm -hmm. City. Um, But at the same time, it holds such a deep and special place in my heart. And um, it will always be home when I'm there even though I realize now I could never live there again. <laughs> um,
0: Why? Why? I'm curious.
1: Because um, living in Arizona, it's so different. It's so spread out. Where I live, it's mm. super quiet. I live across the street from a canyon. Um, mm. And it's super quiet. Like, nothing happens out here. I wake up literally, I feel like I'm in, like, Snow White's forest. I wake up to the sound of birds. Mm. That's what I wake oh, up wow. to. Um I see wildlife like coyotes and javelina and things like that.
0: So what aspects of, of writing this book were the most challenging for you? You know, what kind of material did you ultimately
1: need to cut? Um, so the most challenging parts for me were writing about my postpartum depression and writing about the miscarriage that wasn't a miscarriage, but still was a miscarriage. Um, because mm-hmm. I didn't realize prior to, like, writing those chapters that I hadn't grieved those experiences. Um, mm. So I was literally, like, with the miscarriage that wasn't a miscarriage but was a miscarriage. Um, do, you, do you want to clarify <laughs> that or keep that as a mystery? I'm, I'm trying to figure out if you um, want to keep this mysterious or not. Yeah, I mean, I can clarify it because that, that scene in the book, like... That's the smallest nugget of that scene, if you will. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. whole experience, Mm -hmm. I think, is the big giant nugget. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, I was pregnant with two, but didn't know it, and I lost one in a very traumatic way, um, but kept the other. And my doctor didn't Mm -hmm. even know that there were two until that happened.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, None of
1: us knew that there were two. Um, And it was just Mm -hmm. so deeply traumatic, that experience. Um, And I didn't realize until I was writing it that, like, I hadn't grieved that experience. I had grieved not having another child. Like, I Mm -hmm. always wanted more than one child. And when I was married to my Mm -hmm. second husband, we had tried to have a second child, but we couldn't. Um, And so I had always grieved and mourned the ability to not have another one, but I didn't grieve the one that I lost until I was Mm -hmm. writing about him. And then it was Mm -hmm. just like, I felt like I was being waterboarded, honestly. (laughs) And I had to step away from the writing for a little bit, for sure.
0: How did you end up tackling that material? I think for memoirists especially, Uh, writing about the very difficult material, it's a challenge, and we all have different ways of getting through it. So aside from stepping away when it got to be too much, how did you get it on the page ultimately?
1: I had a really great therapist on call, for one. I recommend Mm -hmm. anyone writing a memoir have a therapist on call because (laughs) things will come up that you don't expect to come up. But also, and this might sound a little woo-woo to your listeners, but for me, like, I'm a really spiritual person, not religious, but definitely spiritual. And for me, it was apologizing to the child that I lost for not grieving him, for not acknowledging his existence and acknowledging his subsequent non-existence and um, apologizing for not loving him in the aftermath. Just really taking that moment to own that and to also forgive myself for not acknowledging him in the moment, in the aftermath, in the years later. Because there was so much happening in my life at that time that was not good so much happening that was just not good that I was just relieved to still have a child in there at all (laughs) and so my whole focus went into the one that was there and I had to forgive myself for that so
0: yeah thank you for that do you do you feel very different from the person you were I, I mean going back to when you were pregnant with Emory or even before do, do you feel I know that's kind of a funny question because we do change so much but I mean do you feel different
1: girl I don't even know who that woman was <laughs> I don't I don't know who mm. that woman was I don't recognize her like I recognize her but at the same time I'm like it's like a fuzzy picture you know mm. when you have like the old Polaroids and they say don't get it wet because then the picture distorts Mm-hmm. that's how I feel when I think back to, like, who I was and mm-hmm. my mindset and the things that I accepted and the decisions that I made. Like, I would never do those things today. I, and, and I think everything happens, you know. I know they say it's cliche and people hate that saying, but for me, <laughs> everything had to happen the way it happened for me to be mm-hmm. who I am today. But I think back to just who I was and how I thought about myself, how I thought about the world, how I moved through the world, what I accepted. And I'm just like, girl, like baby girl, no, Mm -mm, that's not it.
0: (laughs) Is that why, I mean, this is, okay, two things. So number one, would you say that therapy is part, age and therapy, is that like self, self exploration and excavation and age? that's what's helped me. So how have you changed I think, like
1: how did you do I it? I think it's been therapy, I think it's been community, I think it's been mm-hmm. divine hand of God, not to be all, you mm-hmm. know, boo boo spiritual. But you wanna call it God, the universe, big homie in the sky, like Sky Daddy, whatever you wanna call him.
0: <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Can I call him Sky Daddy? You can absolutely call
1: this. him Sky okay. Daddy.
0: <laughs> or Sky Mommy, Sky what, Mommy, okay. Whatever like you wanna call him.
1: Um <laughs> I honestly do believe that the universe has had an absolute hand in ushering the shift in me, Mm -hmm. whether it has been for the negative or the positive. Some of that negative needed to happen because I needed to learn those lessons because I was going to turn around and make the same mistakes again. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's just been community, therapy, the universe, and trusting and having faith, right? Um, In 2012, Mm -hmm. I went through one of the hardest parenting experiences that I've had to go through in my parenting journey, Um, and it was, when I say blind faith, I mean, like, literally just throwing up my hands and being like, all right, like... You said this wasn't the last stop for me. So where are we going? It's up to you. Guide the ship because I'm done. I have nothing left. I have nothing left Mm. to give, to offer, to panhandle, nothing.
0: (laughs) And Emery was how old at that point? She was two. Yeah. So you were really, really in the beginning of being her mom. Yes. Yes. I mean, at the time, it probably felt like you'd been her mom forever. But in hindsight
1: now, you know, 12 years later. Completely. Like a baby mama. Not yeah. in that, not in the way that we know baby <laughs> The other mama. kind of baby mama. Right, right. A baby mama, baby. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I was literally like, all right, God, like you said you didn't bring me this Friday to lay me. So where are we going? Because mm-hmm. I, I have no clue. I'm blind here. I have no money. I have no nothing. I'm about to lose my car. Like take the wheel. Literally Jesus, take the wheel because I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I just had to trust and mm-hmm. it was that literal being like, Okay, we're gonna do this, let's do it and mm-hmm. it all started to fall into place and I know that sounds so wild and I know there's gonna be a listener out there like, Girl no, Mm-mm. I've done that and it hasn't worked. I mm, yeah. I you know, I I don't I don't know what to say to those people because I will I only have my experiences and my experience is I know that no matter what, I'm gonna be okay. I trust Mm -hmm. that the universe is going to work in my greater good. So I'm Mm -hmm. going to act as if I'm already who I want to be, or where I want to be. And I feel like once I take those steps, the universe is like, oh crap, this is what we're doing? (laughs) Bet, let's get on board. And then things just start moving out the way. But I feel like God was just waiting for me to be like, can I have it back? Can I have it now?
0: So, Your mom was really integral to you uh, growing up. She seems like she was a force and she is in the book quite a bit in a really positive and dynamic way. I'm wondering what it was like to have her in your life when you were an early mom, when you were first beginning your parenting and when you were going through these stages of your life that you now feel are so different from the person you are now.
1: So that's actually a really good question. So when I was first becoming a mom, right? I, there was so much chaos in, happening in my personal life that I specifically asked my mom not to come to the hospital when I was giving birth. I was in Texas. She was here in Arizona. And I asked her not to come because I wasn't sure how I would feel at this, you know, new situation. I was already... um, was very nervous about the idea of becoming a mom because everyone told me growing up, oh, you're going to be such a good mom. You're going to be such a good mom. And then like the moments here and I'm like, oh my God, what if I'm not a good mom? And there was just a lot happening in my household with my daughter's father and his children. And it was just kind of a mess. I just knew that there was just too much stress and I just wanted some time to just be right before I had to start Entertaining anybody like my my best friend didn't even come out, and that was really hard for my mom to not be a part of that moment. But it was a boundary that I had to set for myself. And I think as mothers and daughters go, it's that's always kind of a, an interesting dynamic, anyway, right? Mothers and daughters, and then you add the daughter who is an adult, but to that parent is there, that's my child who is setting this very firm boundary on a very major moment, right? So the beginning was rocky to say the least. As things went on, they got better. And she understood a little bit more of what was going on when it came time to separate from my daughter's father. My mom was a huge part of me getting back on my feet. You know, I moved from Texas back here to Arizona, and I lived with her for maybe six months until I got my own place. And she was a huge part of that. I was a social worker at the time, and so she would pick up Emory up from childcare when she got off of work. And sometimes I wouldn't get home until Emory was already in bed. That was difficult for me because then Emory, I kind of felt like, kind of started to look to my mom as her mom. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> That's grandma. I'm mom, and so it was. It's. I feel like I, my parenting journey has been really interesting in balancing being a parent, but being an adult child, but not a child. If that even makes sense, and trying to set those boundaries of how I want to parent versus how I was parented. It's. It's. It's interesting. It's definitely. That's the best way I can put it. Is it's, it's an interesting dynamic that I wasn't prepared for or expecting. You just move through it.
0: Mm -hmm. It's so complicated parenting and being a daughter and being a mom. And, you know, I want to mention, you're going to read an excerpt in a moment, but you cover so much in these pages. And it's not coming across yet, because, you know, you're super funny, and your voice is so strong throughout this book, despite how serious in many cases, what you're dealing with is, you still manage to be super funny and very, very warm. And I, I wonder how humor became, like it's a very strong part of your voice in the book. And you do mention it's a coping mechanism. So I'm wondering how immediate your ability is to find the absurd or the so upsetting it's funny aspect to the challenges you
1: now experience. In the moment, no. I don't find the humor in the moment. It's usually like after the dust has settled and I'm kind of replaying back in my mind what just happened. And I'm like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. How in the <laughs> world did this happen? What? It's almost like I'm watching it on like a TV screen happening to someone else. And I'm like, this is some craziness. This is some bullshit. Like what? It, what? What? What?" how? How, Sway? <laughs> what is this? And that's when I, I'm able to kind of, like, separate from it and think, if I was watching this happen to anyone else, I'd be laughing my ass off because as a scene, this is freaking hilarious. As as horrible as it is, it's also, like, th- is this real life? What is happening? Did someone beat me up? What is this? And that's where, like, the absurd hilarity of it all happens is in the aftermath of thinking about what just happened here.
0: Do you have tips, actually, for writing funny? Do you? What have you learned about creating on the page the humor that you're
1: trying to convey? I think you have to just... Well, for me, I can't speak for how anyone else writes funny. For me, I can't worry about what other people are going to think, or how they're going to judge me. Because hell, I'm judging me. (laughs) Like some of the shit that I do, I'm like, ooh girl, kind of tripling for that. Um, But I just, it just, it is what it is. You know, the reality of the thought is the reality of the thought. And I'm not one to shy away from some of those really wild, off the wall thoughts, because I know I'm not the only person that has them. I'm just the only person dumb enough to put it on the page. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that is true. What you're saying reminds me how important telling the truth and your experiences on the page. And also, I think it's probably true that we laugh at the things that we recognize in ourselves as well. I mean, there is, there's some off the wall that occurs and, and larger than life-ness that happens you know, in on your pages, but it's all rooted in actual events and truth and what you're experiencing and how overwhelmed or exasperated you are. And I think I'm able, I was able when I was reading it to put myself in your shoes to an extent, which is where the humor
1: comes from as well. Well, and that's what it is. It's that when you can look at what someone else has experienced and realize that's not too far off from what I've experienced you connect with that person. You find humanity in that person because you're recognizing the humanity in yourself and saying, hmm, "Maybe I'm not so crazy." If I had that off the wall thought and she had that off the wall thought, two people can't be that off the wall. If there's <laughs> two of us, guaranteed there's 10 of us. <laughs> so it's just it's that recognizing that like, yeah, we're not we're not unicorns. We're all in this together. We're all thinking the same ridiculous jacked up thoughts. Dating the same ridiculous, low-value, low-energy men. I'm just the only one who's about to say, and I had a baby with that low-energy man.
0: Do you want to read your excerpt? And this is from the very first page, so there's really no setup needed.
1: It, it is what it is, Ronit. Here we go. <laughs> uh, this is uh, from Chapter 1, the very first page, The Big Bang. Foundation. Her chubby five-year-old fingers could barely fit around the bottle cap but she worked every little ounce of muscle she had and she handed me my bottle of mocha-hued covergirl foundation. I dabbed it into place, watching my daughter watch me through the large vanity mirror. It reminded me of when I was little in any number of the New York City apartments mom and I lived in, sitting on the lid of the toilet, watching my mom put her makeup on. I would look at my mom and often wonder how someone got to be so pretty, long, thick, wavy black hair that always seemed to feather itself framed her face with skin that was the same color as the café con leche she would drink every morning, little beauty marks dotting her cheeks and cheekbones that could cut glass. She grew up on the tiny island of Vieques, known for being just off the coast of Puerto Rico, its bioluminescent bays that literally glow at night. El Coqui, the cutest, tiniest singing frog, that serves as Puerto Rico's national animal, y la canepas, the sweetest, juiciest, fleshiest little ball of fruit you will ever taste in your entire life. The sticky sweetness that runs down your chin and all the way up your arms to your elbows as you try to pry them out of their soft green skins will transport you to childhood joy. And yes, they do call Puerto Rico La Isla Bonita, but trust me, you'll go for the sandy beaches but you'll stay for the Canepas. The other thing about Puerto Rico, Vieques included, is that it is a heartbreakingly poor island. Now, for those of you that don't know, there's poor and then there's po. If you're poor, you might occasionally use food stamps or have to wear hand-me-downs instead of the latest trends. Maybe you live in the nicest apartment complex in the shadiest part of town. But if you're po, honey. That's a whole different story. Your clothes are handmade by your grandmother using hand-drawn brown paper bag patterns. You trade beans for live chickens with your neighbor and you live in a two-room shack. Then you upgrade to an abandoned panaderia that has been empty for years, and then upgrade again when your grandparents start building a cinder block house where the shack used to be. You eventually have a four-bedroom house that houses 10 of your cousins that now live with you and your grandparents and everyone is sharing a bed and a room. My mom was Poe. She was also a self-described tomboy, a girl who liked climbing mango trees and sitting on the rooftop with her boy cousins. She also said she was skinny as a toothpick, bucktoothed, and awkward. I couldn't picture that as I watched her meticulously apply mascara to her already luscious lashes. Inner corner to outer corner, top to bottom, every single lash was covered. A tomboy would not be that glamorous. She often described herself as ugly. I didn't see any of that when I watched her get ready in the morning. To me, this woman who put makeup on just to be in the house because you never know who was gonna stop by, was a beauty queen. I wondered what Emery thought of me as she helped me get ready. My brown skin, the same color as Hershey's Milk chocolate bar, braids piled high on top of my head, and a gap between my two front teeth that she got a kick out of trying to put her index finger through. Concealer, I said, and she handed me the long tube of red lip gloss, smiling a big cheesy grin. (laughs) My kid had jokes. You really think I'm gonna put red lipstick under my eyes? (laughs) Try again, Holmeslice. I took the red lipstick out of her chubby little kid fingers and wagged it at her in a joking, scolding manner. Laughing so hard her body shook, she found the tube of concealer and handed it to me. When Emery laughs, her whole body laughs. She either leans way back or doubles over, shaking like a grandpa who had just told what to him is the joke of the century her shoulders bounce up and down her eyes squint shut and no sound comes out for about 20 seconds and then boom the sound reminiscent of eddie murphy in beverly hills cop it's pure gold i tell you pure gold
0: <laughs> thank you so much i love that opening I really love an opening to a book where or even an essay where you kind of get oriented in time and space and you you don't have to drink from a water hose like all the information and everything that's happening you just can kind of watch slowly and experience the story unfurling and I felt so placed in time and in relationship with the three women or the three young you know the girl and the women in this this opening. Some of what you share about how people relate to Emory is when I was reading, it was infuriating. And and yet you also take time in the book to educate the reader. You talk about the way differently abled bodies get treated and what being a Black mother with a differently abled child is like, the way people cross boundaries and white people seem oblivious uh, to what Black Americans have lived through and keep enduring all the time. So how do you do this work of protecting yourself which I know has to be important for self-preservation, while educating others when you feel compelled to. How do you take care of yourself and Emory while also making the world a safer place?
1: Um, There's a lot of picking and choosing that happens. I don't choose to educate everybody. There is a whole lot of just scrolling past the comments, scrolling past the article, um, The post whatever it have may be because that it's emotional labor it's emotional labor that I feel like as her mom I'm tasked to do but if I'm going to also be a good mom and have energy to be her mom I have to also you know protect that energy so I pick and choose and I find I educate in the ways that I want to educate the ways that feel good to me so it may be sharing an article that I come across or just sharing a perspective that pops into my head. Um, I have a post that I'm working on about movie theaters and how actually not inclusive they truly are when you think about it. So I pick and choose how, how and when I wanna educate, but I don't always have that, that option, right? There are going to be people who will say things that are so off color, off the wall that I have to respond in the moment. And that's when I have to kind of temper the girl from Queens and the Bronx with the (sighs) professional girl. That's when I have to be like, okay, everything in me wants to tear your face off, but I'm a professional and I have a reputation and gotta keep it classy. (laughs) So I have a girlfriend who I, I tell her she's the queen of the academic read in that she will literally cut you down to centimeters, but she does it in such an eloquent academic way that you don't realize that's that's what's happening. Everyone else in the room is like, dang. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's learning how to do that, but it's also letting my daughter advocate for herself and not apologizing for her. You know, she's very much, if she does not want to be around you, If there's a vibe and she's like, "Mm, I'm not feeling it, she will turn around and roll right away. I have to respect that, right? She knows who she is. She knows the vibe that she likes. She knows where her energy is. And she can read your energy. And if she's not feeling your energy and you're trying to like hang out and be lovey-dovey and she's not feeling it and she's like, I'm out of here, then I let her be out of there. There have been people who have tried to like pat her on her head and before I can even say anything, she's swatting their hand away. And I don't, I don't scold her for it or chastise her for it because nobody should be touching you without your permission anyway. Whether you're a disabled, not disabled, black, white, woman, male, like nobody should be touching anybody without permission. If they reach out to touch her and she's like, don't touch me and swats their hand, don't touch her, leave her alone. Nobody asked you to come and pat her head. That's not a thing we do. It's picking and choosing for me and letting her advocate for herself, stepping in if I need to, but letting her advocate for herself and learning what that's like.
0: You mentioned an article you're working on and I was going to ask you what projects you have cooking right now.
1: So I have the two children's books that are coming out in the next two years. Well, gosh, one is the end of next year and then one in 2026. Working on a new novel. I'm trying my hand at fiction which I've never done before but I'm really excited about it um, because it's totally different than anything I've ever done. I'm contemplating the idea of another memoir but maybe like a peek into like the love life side and things that I've learned I don't know though. I feel like I gave folks a lot. (laughs)
0: lot. (laughs) Well there is a lot of sex in your memoir. I mean
1: I had a baby of course there's sex in it (laughs) but yeah so those are the things I'm working on um I'm very ready for the strike to be over we need the writers to be paid so that my project with that can get underway but beyond that writers just need to be paid period let me go on record stating pay the writers and yeah and I like a wild woman decided to start my MFA this summer
0: Oh, wow, 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 wow. So where are you doing it and what are you focusing on?
1: I'm at Vermont College of Fine Arts. I'm in their low residency program, and I'm getting my MFA in creative writing with a focus on fiction and creative nonfiction.
0: Wow, congratulations. I know a bunch of people who graduated from there, and it seems like a top-notch program there. I love the multi-genre thing. I mean, you're now at least a three-genre writer.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, I know how to do children's books. I feel like I got a good grasp on memoir. I've never done fiction. I want to learn. I want to see if that's something I can do too. I've done poetry. You know, I got my start in poetry and spoken word. And I think you can never have too many tools in your writing tool belt.
0: Yeah. And that makes sense to me that you, you started with poetry and spoken word because I'm telling you that your book is so strong in voice and it's so readable.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And that's, I, I really appreciate you saying that, Ronnie, because I, one of the main reasons that I'm going for my MFA, you know, it's, it's completely self-serving. i would put that up there front, front and foremost, because I sometimes feel like I'm not a legitimate writer because I don't have the MFA that all these other amazing writers have. And I don't feel like I can necessarily stand in that writer's field with them. I don't feel like I have what they have when it comes to voice and writing style and skill. So I appreciate you saying that.
0: Okay, well, I have to pause and just say, I'm so happy you said that because a couple of things. One, I did get my MFA. I graduated in 2017 from Pacific University, and that was a low residency as well, and that's in Oregon. And I kept it off of some of my bio. I'm so sorry, Pacific University. I did that in the beginning because I didn't want people to think that I thought because I got an MFA that I thought I was awesome and incredible that i was like i got my mfa because i remember back in the day when i was trying to decide whether or not to do it lots of articles come out all the time in the trade magazines about how it can help you you don't have to do it it's really great there's all these issues that are dedicated to the different mfa programs and the pros and cons and i felt i didn't want people to think that i thought that just because i got my masters that i was I don't know, more valid or something. Do you know what I mean? So I had the reverse of you in a way, but I also know what you're talking about because the imposter syndrome or the wondering if we're good enough or all that stuff. Anytime something good happens for me on a creative level, I feel like I'm hoarding it. I got another shiny badge. I'm official. And so I kind of understand what you're saying. It it was
1: really, it's difficult. You know, I have some favorite writers like Disha Filia and Deneen Milner. And... I look at them and I'm like, God, those are like the goddesses of writing for me. But then my, one of my very best friends who just got her MFA in visual art, like my writing hero is Zora Neale Hurston. Like I, the goddess of goddesses when it comes to writing for me. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Zora didn't have her MFA.
0: Right, exactly. Like you don't have to do it, but I also could imagine you teaching one day and, has that crossed your mind?
1: Yes, so actually my plan is, dun, 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 this is me officially, <laughs> officially, officially putting it out into the universe. So everyone manifest this for me. My goal is to get my MFA. By the time I graduate, my daughter will be going into her junior year in high school. So my goal is to get my MFA and then teach at the university level until she graduates. And then if she decides to go to university, then she can come to where I am.
0: Okay, I'm already manifesting that for you. That's, you know, I definitely think that's, that's something where I feel like, again, you don't have to have it, but the MFA will definitely help you with that teaching part, right? Like getting the jobs you want. Okay, so let's, I know that I have kept you a million years because I could talk to you all day, but what books or memoirs are some of your favorites? You mentioned some of your favorite writers. Are there a couple of books that I can pop into the show notes that people can go check out?
1: My absolute favorite memoir that I read, and this is gonna be like, what? You read celebrity memoirs? I do, I read celebrity memoirs because I'm nosy. But I also love good storytelling. I love good storytelling. And the best one that I read, that I recommend people listen to as opposed to read in hand, is Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights. Hands down, the best. And I read a lot of memoir prior Mm -hmm. to writing my own. And it gave me so much insight into how I wanted to tell my story. And he's so real, he's so real. And he's so upfront and honest about who he is and who he has been and who he wants to be. His storytelling is just chef's kiss, like amazing. And there's so much life lesson learning in that book and I walked through like I still will be trying to make a decision and I will check in with my body is this a green light or a red light that's how much it stuck with me and I what I wanted with my book was I wanted to leave people with a hope for themselves for an understanding of what life can be when you choose differently with brave braveness bravery I guess to choose differently when life is really throwing the tomatoes at you to to pivot I wanted I wanted people to get that out of my book I wanted people to see their own humanity because we live in a world especially as women as mothers where we judge ourselves so harshly because the world does the world holds moms to this ridiculous unrealistic standard and then we hold ourselves to it because we think we have to do what the world expects us to do and in doing so we don't allow ourselves the freedom of being whole human beings we don't and we don't let other people see us as whole human beings and I wanted to just you know put the messy out there put the ugly out there put the unlikableness out there and let people see you can still be a whole human being even with the messy and the ugly and it's okay okay Mm -hmm. and that's what he did in his book he he showed you all of it and it was so refreshing and so beautiful thank you
0: and do you have some last words that you would like to share with people working on their memoirs or people who love reading memoirs
1: um for people working on the memoirs i would say you don't have to tell all the ugly but tell tell the ugly you know some ugly keep it for yourself that's fine but Keep it real on the page, like let the ugly come out, let the messy come out, let the imperfect come out. It makes you real, it makes you human, it makes you relatable. And I think more than anything, that's what people need nowadays. That's what people are craving nowadays is some some connective tissue to the next person. For people reading memoir, judge, but judge yourself at the same time. If you're reading a memoir and you find yourself feeling some sort of way about something, Ask yourself why do you feel that way about what whatever it is that you just read. What what's that bringing up for you? Let like go on the journey with the author, but also allow yourself to go on your own inner journey as you're reading the book. Thank you.
0: And lastly, where can people best find you? How can they connect with you? On
1: Instagram, it's just at Adiba Nelson A D I B A N E L S O N. On Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days (laughs) Um, if they haven't deleted my profile because I'm so rarely on it um, it's also just at Adiba Nelson on Facebook it's Adiba Nelson writer W-R-I-T-E-R LinkedIn it's just Adiba Nelson and the website net.
0: okay and I'll put that all in there so people can find you and your book and your work and Oh my gosh, this was so great and I'm so happy we (laughs) recorded it well this time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, Thank you for being my guest. I can't wait to share this episode and am really excited
1: that we were able to talk. Thank you. Me too. I have loved this and I'm going to say it now on air. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this podcast. I have legitimately been waiting for you to ask me. So I was over the moon when I got the email. Thank
0: you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.